like the rule that says if you earn such and such amount of money, a chancellor of the exchequer, whoever that might be or is going to be, because it seems a very movable feast, wants a large chunk of it. Uh, I suppose the self-employed absolutely hate that because they get the bill. Those in employment, it's a wee bit easier. You don't get the money in the first place. We have an aversion, don't we, to rules? And yet there are some rules that you really like. Uh, I was talking to someone before the service and I was saying how my father used to come here on a bicycle, not through the village, but down the Rossburn Road. It's not all that wide, is it? Uh, if I'm getting the right name of it. But when you think of it, you might be, well, you could be like an elderly member in my first congregation. I was going to say he flew with the RAF, but he didn't fly with the RAF because the RAF wasn't formed. He was in the Royal Flying Corps, and I remember him showing me the, the uniform. But the neighbors used to say that uh, he paid double road tax because he just drove down the middle of the road. Now, that maybe worked in the back roads of County Tyrone, but can you imagine not abiding by the rule that says you, you drive on the left-hand side. Can you imagine me going home today and going up the Rossburn Road and saying, I have to pop with this, I'm going to drive on the right-hand side of the road. What's the chances that I make it as far as the Ross Park? There are some rules that are just evident that we, we need to keep them. We need to keep them for our own preservation. I suppose the one thing that really... Uh, makes the differences. If it's a rule that pays off immediately, we tend to keep it. But if it's one of these rules that looks into the future and doesn't really have any downside in the immediate present, well, then we would be less likely to get fastidious about it. But what about some of these rules that God has? There's always been a, a degree of confusion. If you go to Leviticus and you find rules there about eating shellfish, rules about not planting two different seeds in the same fields, all sorts of those rules, what you might eat, what you might drink, what, what do you make of those? And then you find rules there that seem to overlap with the Ten Commandments. How do, you, how do you work out the difference between those that are abiding and those that are not? And really, to clear up the confusion, we need to realize that when God was giving laws, he, he, he did it really in three spheres or three aspects. He gave us the moral law, and that's the Ten Commandments. He gave Israel ceremonial laws, and that's all sorts of laws about worship, you know, about what you use in worship. We might say bells and smells and all those sorts of things God was giving it there in the ceremonial law. And then because Israel was and the church were sort of indistinguishable, he gave civil laws as well. Uh, penalties, penalties for adultery, stoning, penalties for breaking the Sabbath. The same thing, you know, in John Calvin's Geneva, uh, people would, well, they'd be busy in Kells and Connor this morning, wouldn't they? They would knock the door to make sure that people were going to worship because the town council in Geneva 
took upon itself an ecclesiastical authority, and they would make sure that people would go to church. So there was a wee bit of this going on even in the Reformation times. But really, when we come to look at the law, we're looking at the moral law, because that the civil law, the ceremonial law, these, have, these things have faded. They were for Israel, and they're not for us today. And if you're very interested in studying this up, well, the Westminster Confession, chapter 20, and I think uh, from looking at it this morning, paragraph 3 is where you go to, and it, it puts it pretty, uh, pretty bluntly. Do you like rules? You see, without rules, governments become a dictatorship, don't they? Oh, no, this has nothing to do with the trivial things, dare I say, of whether you eat a birthday cake or you order curry, and one obviously seems to be breaking the rules and the other doesn't. Well, according to the police forces that investigate, maybe not according to, to judges. It's not about that. But governments that don't follow the rules become dictatorships. It's the 50th anniversary of the crazy man of Africa, Idi Amin, deciding that he didn't want any Asians there. So he just made a rule to tell them all to go away and told Britain, they're your problem. You can have them. And what was it, 50,000 or something like that? No, 30,000 maybe. Ugandan Asians arrived on these shores. Governments that don't keep rules are dictatorships. Corporations or companies that don't keep rules, what are they? They're just robber barons, aren't they? You know, there's a, a general rule that if you go to a building society in a bank and you give them 100 pounds and they put it in an account, that, you know, any time in the future you can go back and they, well, they'll give you it back. If they weren't doing that, if they weren't keeping those rules, you wouldn't be terribly happy, would you? So we don't confuse the three different kinds of, of laws. You know, one of the keys to this is 1 Corinthians 7, 19. And there it says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count as anything but keeping the law of God. You see, circumcision and uncircumcision were part of the ceremonial law in Israel. And when we get to Paul in the New Testament, he says, no, they don't count as anything. But he does go on to say, but keeping the law of God. So he divides off the Ten Commandments. He divides them off from things like lavers and altars and priests and and uh, priestly garments and the calendar of holy days and dietary laws, and we could go on infinitum. So, when we come to the Ten Commandments, they're not the same. They're not in the same category as, as wearing a poly cotton shirt, two different fibers in your shirt. They're not in the same category uh, as whether somebody should be stoned for their sin or whatever else. So remember that. Because if we don't understand how to use the Ten Commandments, if we don't understand the status of the Ten Commandments, then we get into all sorts of trouble. I mentioned a few books that um, <clears throat> on the Ten Commandments, one of the other, well, I think I did mention this one, uh, one of the other books anyway is, and then there were nine. 
I remember a visiting minister coming to Carnlock and it was in the bookstall, it was in the vest, the bill of the church and he looked at it and he said, and this guy doesn't believe in the Sabbath. I said, no, no, it was just a provocative title. It wasn't that he thought you could do away with any of the Ten Commandments. I think I said before, maybe the last time when I was here, I said, um, you know, the, uh, you can quote from Luther, you can quote from Calvin, you can quote from all sorts of people, but there was a very ordinary, humble country minister in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and when he preached on the Ten Commandments, he set it all up by saying there are three things we need to understand about them. They are a murder, they are a map, and they are a muzzle. That's a great place to start. They're a mirror, they're a map, and they're a muzzle. What did we do this morning? We looked in the mirror, but it didn't shave us. It didn't wash our face. didn't move the away with any wrinkles. It didn't tell us our eyebrows were getting too bushy or whatever else. Oh, it told us that, but it didn't cut them off. And it didn't give us a tight haircut. It shows us we might need all those things, but no, it doesn't do it for us. When we become a Christian, Ten Commandments are a map. They show us how to live our lives, don't they? Uh, they are phenomenal. They show us, yes, how to love our neighbor, and we'll say that in a minute, and they show us how to love God, the things that are expected. And they are a muzzle, aren't they? You know, our society really gets into all sorts of trouble when they ignore the Ten Commandments. We have heard all the, the things said about Roe versus Wade and the general, the press have talked about the evil of overturning Roe versus Wade, the evil of overturning laws that have caused the death of 60 million, 60 million. I couldn't help but look up the statistics of the Abortion Act for the UK. Many million, 10 how many million does that cover? I looked at the population of London and Birmingham and Liverpool and Manchester and whatever. Didn't even get to 10 million, apparently. More than those huge cities since 1967 have been put to the sword and have been incinerated. Well, that's not just incinerating a photograph in a bonfire. That's way, way, way beyond that evil deed. Way, way beyond it. Isn't it amazing? You know, it's amazing where society goes when it doesn't keep the law of God, isn't it? I have a friend and she works for the health service. She's in a reasonably senior management job in the health service. She manages all the appointments for women's health. I was just thinking the other day, when abortion services roll in, who will they ask to manage it? Will they throw it at her? Will she be the one responsible for sending out the appointments for the destruction of the unborn? You see, it comes, it comes a lot closer than you think. And to not do that is the bad person. The other Sunday evening, Philip recommended a little book about the bad guys. We're now the bad guys. It's chilling to think that because society at large, when it was comfortable with God's law, society at large was 
basically saying we don't like all the religious mumbo-jumbo, but the, the Judeo-Christian ethic and everything else around it is something that has been very good, isn't it? What is sin? Catechism says sin is any want of conformity onto or transgression of the law of God. Where's the law found in summary? It asks in the Ten Commandments. What did Jesus say about the law, the Ten Commandments? Well, he said the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. What's that a summary of? Surely it's, well, how do you love the Lord? The first four of the Ten Commandments. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Questions five to ten. Isn't that where you find it? It's as simple as that. You love your neighbor. How do you do it? By keeping, by striving to keep the first four of the, uh, your, how do you love God? By striving to keep the first four of the Ten Commandments. How do you love your neighbor? By referring and striving to keep numbers five and ten. You see, there's a real key to understanding God's law. Yes, you have to discriminate against uh, uh, those laws that were for a time, the ceremonial law and the civil law, and make sure you're in the moral law. Yes, there are, there's still some wisdom in the ceremonial and civil law in places. Don't discount it just because it is no longer enforced. But it is the moral law that is being talked about in the New Testament. And it's been the moral law that when Jesus is asked about the law, that he refers to the ten commandments. You see, there's something more here as well. And unless we get this, we never get the impact of the commandments themselves. There's a maximum and a minimum nature to them. There's a positive and a negative nature to them. There's the part and the whole. What about the maximum and the minimum? Take, for example, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. You know, it was interesting when Jesus spoke about this. He said in Matthew 15, whatever help you might have received from me is a gift devoted to God. The, the child saying to his parents, oh, I've been too busy about the work of the kingdom to look after you. What does Jesus say? That's not honoring your mother and your father. You can't be too busy about the work of the kingdom to look after your mother and your father. You can't put someone else, something else in in its place. There's a positive and there's a negative. Not kill my neighbor. Well, we know that really isn't going far enough. You know, we, we can't say we didn't put a picture in our bonfire. Well, we have to show love for our neighbor. We have to do all that we can for them. Or maybe it's a, the part or a whole that we're interested in. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part of it, James says, is guilty of it all. I came across an illustration. It was one of these sort of illustrations where, well, it's from a different place and a different time. It was a Presbyterian minister in New York City. And Monday came around and he liked to go out and he maybe got the weekend edition 
of the New York Times, and he liked to go and he liked to read some of the, the articles in it, and he went to the local coffee shop. But he went to the kosher coffee shop because the food was very special there. And generally that is a rule. If you go to the Jewish or the kosher coffee shops, it's good. And in came the local rabbi. And they sort of nodded and they realized that they knew each other who they were. And they got into conversation and over the weeks they started to meet. Just on a Monday, they were both off, bit of crack, and that was, that was okay. And uh, the rabbi said to him, he says, you know, I've got a new car. He says, you know our congregation is quite wealthy. And he says, I've got a new car and I've got a top of the line Mercedes. Really nice car. He says, I really like that car. And then he, he looked at the, the, the Presbyterian minister and he says, you ever realize that we're really quite good at keeping the Ten Commandments, aren't we? And the minister smiled and thought, where is this going? He says, but you know, when I got this car, I realized I had a problem because the Ten Commandments are so easy to keep. But he said, I had a real problem because the other day I, I rang my brother and he He's a rabbi in Chicago. And he says, after I got my new Mercedes, where did he go? He went and he bought a new Mercedes. And he says, you know, I got one and there was a few extras on it, but you cannot believe the amount of extras he got on his. You know, the wheels, double diamond cut, the paintwork, you know, it's almost embellished with, with gold uh, glitter and uh, the paint everything that could be thrown at the car. And none of these vegan leather seats in his car, that's a new name for plastic seats, by the way, none of these vegan leather seats in his car, they were real Napa leather. And he says, I'm just scunnered. He says, I waited years to get that car. And he says, I really am jealous of his car. Oh, yes, the rabbi hadn't really got it in any of the parts that we have said, but he was brought to the point, and the minister didn't miss it in a kind way. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part of it becomes guilty of it all. And we're all guilty of it all. You know, the great expression came, a great reply came from President Carter when he was president of the United States a rather excited journalist put a microphone before him and he said, Mr. President, have you ever committed adultery? Straight out. Carter looked him in the eye and he says, only in my heart. Only in my heart. Couldn't we answer that with them all? Couldn't we? Yeah. Have we worshipped worship idols? Have we chased after the other God? Have we committed adultery? Have we stolen we have at least done it in our hearts. And we are in the same position as these people were as they were going up to Jerusalem. As they were singing this psalm of ascent, I say, the hills will lift my eye. Where does my help come from? It only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one whose blood was shed on the mercy seat and covers the broken law. We're running close to the clock, but there's another couple of minutes that I want to give to you. And I want to look at the second commandment. And really there are four things, I suppose, we can say very quickly at the second commandment. 
We're not to make graven image. What do you mean by a graven image? Is it taking a hammer or a mallet? Is it taking a chisel? Is it making a statue? I think the picture of a graven image is a human concoction. Whether it be in our minds or whether it be worked out in celluloid or whether nowadays it's a digital thing on a phone or a screen or whatever else. We're not to make an image of God. Have you ever thought it's only the last 10 years, really, or so, that we've had smartphones, you know, the ones that passed the 11 plus, the smartphones, that give you pictures and all that sort of nonsense. It's only about that time we've had those sort of things, isn't it? What would it have been like when Jesus came to earth? You know, you go to a wedding reception. It used to be if you went to a wedding reception and, uh, you know, they might even have given you one of these terrible wee disposable cameras that took really bad pictures. You might have got that. And then you might have sent it off and got it developed. And if you're really fortunate, you might have gone to a wedding and you just forgot to put film in your camera and then you didn't get any bad pictures. You were sitting on. But nowadays, everybody's there. We were at a, a wedding reception last Saturday and it was two years and two months too late. You know, the way it was. Uh, they had to wait all that time before they had their reception. But everything, uh, you know, snapping here, there, and everywhere, all over the place. Jesus did not come into the world to have his photo taken, to be drawn, or anything else. There were no images of him. I drive past a photographer that took our wedding photographs, his house, it's on Queen Street in Ballamay, it's our last house coming out. I'm sure he's long since departed this earthly coil. But I still remember the Friday night, maybe it was because I had to pay money, but you want to get your album. Can you imagine a young couple going to see, to see the photographer and him saying, photographs weren't bad, you know, weren't bad at all. And then he looks at the man and he says, you, you must have been very busy because you looked a bit peaky, but I have a way of fixing it. Look at that guy there. We'll put him in for the photograph instead of you. Right. That would be an interesting concept, wouldn't it? He might just get away with that. The wife might laugh and think it was a joke. But then he looks at the wife and he says, you know, I know you were trying really hard. We had a young couple for lunch about three weeks ago and then we went to their wedding 10 days after. I couldn't understand why she was playing with her food on the plate. And then, ah, George, you're slow. Ah, she had to fit into a dress, didn't she? She couldn't eat for the last... 10 days, a couple of weeks. You had to stop that. Can you imagine the photographer saying to the wife, I know you tried really, really hard, but the dress bulged a bit, didn't it? Look, look at this picture I can use here. How would that go down? Oh, he could go on. Oh, the hair's blonder, the teeth are whiter, the model's slimmer. You're going to have phenomenal wedding photographs. Hmm, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? You see, there was nobody there to take a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody there to do that. What nonsense it is when we think we are honoring God by using a picture of someone else or of our own imagination. We're not meant to worship God in that way. There's a warning in this about not worshiping the right God, the right way, isn't there? The sin 
follows to the third and fourth generation. You mess up your life. You don't just mess up your own life. You mess up the life of your children. Isn't that a salutary warning about how we need to live our lives? But you know, there's something even more here. The promise, the promise is more powerful than the warning. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. And it talks to a thousand generations. Does it literally mean a thousand generations? I don't think so. I think it means forever. It's a figure of speech. A thousand generations that God is going to bless those who worship the right God in the right way, who turn away from worshiping idols, who turn away from worshiping human creations. You see the way that we can ruin, yes, our own lives, but we can do even more than that. We can ruin the very lives of our families by turning away from God and worshiping the false God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We ask that you would take that which is from you, that you would put it in our hearts, that you would challenge us by it, and that you would bless us richly as we seek comfort from your word, as we seek sustenance, uh, that we might know that your hand is upon us and blessing us. We thank you for this hour of worship, and we praise you in Jesus' name for it. Amen.